Good evening. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, and this is the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. Each week I'll be playing stripped-down, deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, highlighting different instruments and vocals in a way that will truly amaze you. Imagine sitting in the control room at EMI Studios and having the opportunity to peel away the layers of a song, discovering new elements that you never knew existed. This is the closest you can get to that experience. So sit back, tune in, and enjoy the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. I'll make you maybe next time When people speak of Paul McCartney, his accomplishments as a songwriter and singer are usually mentioned first. His expertise as a bass player is often taken for granted. So tonight, we're going to focus on this aspect of his musicianship in the first of multiple episodes to showcase this particular talent. While his playing on later albums like Revolver and Sgt. Pepper are often cited when discussing his skills as a bass player, his style was always unique, and we're going to discuss some of his performances from 63, 64, and 65 that foreshadow what was to come during his later years as a Beatle and as a solo artist. On their debut LP, McCartney's playing already shows signs of the incredibly melodic bass lines that would grace the later albums and influence countless future bass players. At this early stage, his prowess is evident, but it's hard to believe that within a year, his bass lines would be the reason that a great many otherwise average songs would become stellar productions. Interestingly, the man who demanded such control over the other players on his compositions would contribute parts to theirs that at times were highly improvised. The difference is that his improvised bass lines would invariably prove the perfect complement to the song. Lennon in particular held McCartney's playing in high regard, stating, Paul was one of the most innovative bass players ever, and half the stuff that is going on now is directly ripped off from his Beatles period. Harrison, on the other hand, said in a 1974 interview, I'd rather have Willie Weeks on bass than Paul. And that's not meant as anything personal against Paul. Paul is a fine bass player, although he may be a little overpowering at times. At that point in the band's history, however, Harrison's comment could easily be attributed to their ongoing personal problems. As a writer-producer, McCartney would frequently approach his songs in a more methodical way, often knowing what he wanted from the other musicians before he entered the studio. In contrast, Lennon would bring a song in and develop it with the others in the studio. Lennon even stated in his last major interview with David Sheff for Playboy magazine in 1980 that the band, especially McCartney, treated his songs in a rather loose manner. He subconsciously tried to destroy songs, meaning that we'd play experimental games with my great pieces, like Strawberry Fields. But usually we'd spend hours doing little detailed cleaning ups of Paul's songs. When it came to mine, somehow this atmosphere of looseness and casualness and experimentation would creep in. Subconscious sabotage. He'll deny it because he's got a bland face, and he'll say the sabotage doesn't exist. But this is the kind of thing I'm talking about, where I was always seeing what was going on. I begin to think, well, maybe I'm paranoid. But it's not paranoid, it's absolute truth. But in many ways, this method was to Lennon's and the band's advantage. Some of McCartney's most memorable bass lines were played on both Lennon's and Harrison's songs. And Lennon often did come to the sessions unprepared, looking for input from the rest of the Beatles. McCartney himself elaborated on this theory. When someone else is singing, I'd realize my role was to play a bass part to complement what he's singing. I would think it's because someone else is singing, I see my role as the bass player, and I'll come up with something inventive. When I'm singing, I think, well, all you've got to do is just play a bass part, mate. And I might not think, ooh, I've got to pull it out the bag. Yeah, so what's some good bass parts? Taxman was good. That was George. Something. That was good. That was George. Come Together was good. That was John. 
Yeah, it's probably true. McCartney didn't mention the phenomenal bass lines on his own songs like Paperback Writer and Penny Lane, to name a few. An interesting point that tends to be forgotten is that McCartney was originally a guitarist. The fact that he was the natural multi-instrumentalist of the group at such an early stage, having played drums or piano for many a gig before being discovered by Brian Epstein, made him the natural choice to take over bass duties following Stuart Sutcliffe's departure from the band in 1961. Plus, neither Lennon nor Harrison wanted to take on that responsibility. McCartney's first recording playing guitar wouldn't occur until their fourth LP, Beatles for Sale, on the song I'll Follow the Sun. Something of note is how melodic McCartney's bass lines are, as well as his extensive use of hammer-ons. A hammer-on is a playing technique performed on a bass or guitar by sharply bringing a fretting hand finger down on the fingerboard on a fret above the note that is sounding, causing a slur-like effect. This melodicism, his extensive use of the hammer-on, and his ability to explore the upper reaches of the bass neck would all play significant roles in solidifying the McCartney bass sound in rock and roll history. It was apparent at an early stage that the bass was playing an extremely important role in the Beatles' sound. Rather than a steady barrage of eighth-note roots or a typical walking bass line, McCartney treated the bass as an integral and melodic instrument that could add more to the song than just root notes. From the first take of the opening track on their debut album, Please Please Me, the bass playing is superb. The bass ostinato pattern in I Saw Her Standing There is a rare find in the Beatles catalog, although it's the foundation of early rock and roll music. Most blues bass tunes of the 50s are based on a repeated bass line playing through the 1-4-5 progression and was heard often in Beatles covers, but was rarely a part of their own songwriting. I Saw Her Standing There, Hold Me Tight, Little Child, What You're Doing, Day Tripper, Paperback Writer, Hey Bulldog, Birthday, and The Ballad of John and Yoko are the very few examples in the Beatles canon. It's important to note that while 50s rock and roll influenced the Beatles' attitude greatly, their songwriting was influenced by far more diverse types of music in comparison to some of their contemporaries like the Rolling Stones or the Yardbirds. These tastes resulted in a debut album that was more pop than rock and roll. It also speaks volumes about McCartney as a bass player. From the time he picked up the bass guitar, he was searching for more melodic ways to approach the instrument. This is often the case for bass players who begin as guitarists, but it has never been done more effectively than by McCartney. This often led him toward a more dynamic bass line that changed and grew throughout the song. Although McCartney himself has claimed that the bass line from I Saw Her Standing There was lifted from Chuck Berry's I'm Talking About You, he does add a significant change to Willie Dixon's line in the chorus. Rather than continue the eighth-note ostinato, he switches to a quarter-note pattern. One might think that this would undermine the song's pulsating groove, but it actually does the exact opposite. By slowing down the bass note movement into a halftime feel, McCartney creates a sense of anticipation that leads us to the ultimate payoff, the ooh over the non-diatonic flat six chord. It's as if the song is continually leading us to this climax, and McCartney is the one that sets it in motion by changing his bass line at the beginning of the B section leading up to that precise moment. There are a few other tasty licks in the bass part that are worth mentioning as well. After the first two choruses, McCartney begins to vary his bass part. On the third chorus, he outlines the triad on the one chord, and on the fourth, the solo chorus, he introduces a new rhythm, two eighth notes followed by a quarter note. This brings together the feel of the prior verses and choruses into a single line that leads into a sweet syncopated rhythm on the four chord that works perfectly with Harrison's solo, showing how tight they were as a band. This is one hell of a bass part, and keep in mind that he was laying down an incredible vocal take at the same time, a true testament to McCartney's musicianship.
For their second single, Please Please Me, McCartney's bass part is an important component that would play a large part in the Beatles' sound. From the hammer-ons in the verse to the melodic leading tones in the refrain, we get a true sense of McCartney the bass player that was not apparent on their first single, Love Me Do. At this early stage in the game, McCartney already had a distinctive personality on the instrument. Interestingly, the bass part he plays on the mono version has a much straighter eighth note feel during the verse, with fewer hammer-ons than the stereo version. Although McCartney does flub a number of notes on the stereo mix, since it was compiled from lesser takes, it has a swagger that's slightly lacking on the mono mix. McCartney would also interpret the bass parts on cover songs in his own unique voice, as he lays down a truly funky bass part on You Really Got a Hold On Me. His use of hammer-ons is again apparent at this stage of the game, but they are still used sparingly and only give us a glimpse of what's yet to come. At the end of the first A section, he plays a two-note hammer-on that foreshadows the type of playing we would hear on Rubber Soul, Revolver, and Sgt. Pepper. I cannot stress enough the importance of this sound to the Beatles' music. It would be a technique that people would equate with the McCartney style of playing and would play a major role in the development of McCartney as a bass icon. His part is more aggressive and melodic than the original played by James Jamerson. Where Jamerson's approach of alternating the 1 and 5 gives the original a laid-back groovy feel, McCartney's line moves around much more and becomes somewhat of a counter-melody. Another cover from the With the Beatles LP that gets a kick from McCartney's bass playing is Money. Once again, the rhythm section of McCartney and Stark kill it. With unbridled energy and reckless abandon, they both turn in performances that would indeed make this a potboiler, as George Martin would call it, and land its place as the closer of the album, much in the way Twist and Shout did on their prior album. McCartney's hammer-ons are becoming a staple of his style and are showing up in more and more bass parts. There was not much of the original bass part left once McCartney got his hands on it. The original line basically outlines the chords throughout the song, laying out for the most part during the verse. McCartney begins by doubling the guitar lick for the intro, but then lays down long whole notes along with Harrison and Lennon as Starr cops the original's tom-tom rhythm. This long hold falls somewhere in between Strong's version, where the band hits on the one with a short quarter note, and the way the Beatles originally played it, in which the bass and guitarists play an eighth note rhythm throughout the A section. By changing to sustained ringing whole notes, the group leaves space for Starr's floor tom groove to be front and center, while still supporting it and adding a threatening tone to the proceedings. McCartney then hits a fierce eighth note groove locking in with the rhythm guitar, filling with octave jumps and hammer-ons to highlight the choruses. After three verses and three choruses, he returns to doubling the lead guitar for the instrumental section. After another verse and refrain, the song takes its most menacing sounding turn for the last two choruses. At this point, McCartney begins playing a variation of the lead line on the tonic, returning to the original mix of quarter and eighth note octave movement on the four chord as Starr finally moves to the ride cymbal after two minutes of relentless tom-toms, lifting the groove to a new level. But it's the last chorus that truly soars. As soon as we hit the one chord, McCartney goes into overdrive with a pounding eighth note pattern mirrored by Starr's kick drum, digging in his heels for one last go-round while Lennon's vocals continue to build and get more aggressive. It's an astounding and exhausting climax, and before we know what hit us, two minutes and 47 seconds of the most subversive-sounding rock and roll have transpired.
I Want to Hold Your Hand marks a first for the Beatles, the use of the four-track recorder, and a first for Paul McCartney, the debut of his new 1963 Hofner 501 bass. After nearly two and a half years of gigging, McCartney's 1961 Hofner had seen better days. By the time they recorded She Loves You and I'll Get You, on July 1st, 1963, one of the pickups was held in place with black adhesive tape. The 1961 bass would be repaired in 64 and would see use on the song Revolution, both in the studio and in the video, but was stolen at the video shoot and never recovered. The primary difference between the two Hofners is the pickup placement. McCartney's original 1961 Hofner had the pickups close together near the neck, while the 63 model had them spaced further apart with a neck and bridge pickup, giving it greater tonal variety. McCartney's part is straightforward, following the rhythm of Starr's kick drum pattern throughout, but there are a few hip additions. The first occurs in the song's intro. Rather than playing only the root notes for the hits, the bass plays the root followed by the third of the first chord before settling on the D, the root of the second chord. The only deviation from this lick occurs after the first bridge. Inadvertently, McCartney starts off on the third and then goes down to the root. Although this was a mistake, it makes for an interesting sounding variation that isn't immediately apparent. Another important part of the bass line is heard in the second half of bar two of the verse. The chromatic eighth note run is so vital to I Want to Hold Your Hand, it was the only guitar overdub added on their first foray into the world of four-track recording, demonstrating a sense of self-control by all involved. This four-note lick emphasizes the minor sixth chord that follows, and also introduces the sound of the major three with the use of the D-sharp. Harrison played the lick an octave above McCartney's bass to reinforce it and make the line more significant. It's been reported many times that a bass was overdubbed, but when the overdub channel is isolated, it's apparent that it's actually Harrison's Gretsch Country Gentleman. McCartney adds one additional unique element to his part, double stops or bass chords. Halfway through the first bridge, he adds a fifth above the root on the D minor chord, and on the second bridge, he plays the root and fifth on every chord except the two G major chords. This gives the second bridge a distinctive tone that provides more bottom, complementing McCartney's added vocal harmony that's not heard on the first bridge.
The B-side of the Beatles' first single of 1964, Can't Buy Me Love, is another example of McCartney adding a part to a Lennon composition that elevates the song to new heights. While the guitars of Lennon and Harrison provide the sparkle and sheen of You Can't Do That, McCartney's bass and Starr's drums hold down the bottom and keep the backbeat rocking from start to finish. It's surprising that more hasn't been said of his bass part on the song, because it's simply phenomenal. In 1963, he hinted at the melodic, funky type of bass lines that would be heard on songs such as The Word, Rain, and Taxman, but on You Can't Do That, he takes this to a new level and his playing truly shines. He's locked in from the start, entering with Lennon and sliding up from the F-sharp to the G before settling into what seems to be a simple quarter-note rhythm that plays along with the cowbell, which incidentally would be overdubbed by McCartney. He plays a simple lick into the A section, but what makes the part interesting is the flurry of notes he plays at the end of almost every two-bar phrase once the A section kicks in. The pattern, 4-5 flat 7-8, appears throughout the A section on both the 1-7 and 4-7 chords, and foreshadows the bass part heard on Rain in particular. After the band breaks on the Because I Told You Before line, McCartney cleverly moves from the 4-7 to the 1 via a bluesy riff before closing out the section with his signature hammer-ons on the 5 chord. As he was prone to do, the second A section is played differently. This time the lick is heard less frequently because he decides to slide into the one chord from the F sharp every bar. This changes the feel and makes the song sound a bit more menacing. He continues this slide on the four chord, but when the break comes, a moving line is played that emphasizes the Because I lyric. The ominous feel is heightened during the last two bars of the section as McCartney begins to play the slide from F sharp to G every two beats. The bridge is relatively simple, with the bass continuing the quarter note feel with a few licks connecting the chords. The innovative use of the major 3-7 to minor 6 progression, along with the three-part harmonies, are enough to keep the section interesting without any bass gymnastics. The third A section is similar to the first two, but the solo is anything but. Although it's played over the same chords, the bass plays a unique part not heard anywhere else in the song. It begins with steady eighth notes, but quickly changes into a more standard rock and roll bass line that outlines the root, third, and fifth of each chord. This energizes the song and grooves perfectly under Lennon's raw, forceful guitar solo, but wasn't played on every take or during live performances. The group returned to the studio four days after You Can't Do That was recorded to tackle a Lennon song written before the Beatles were a group, but with a similar feel, I Call Your Name. Given the sentiment of the lyrics and the fact that the majority of it was written by Lennon around 1957, some have speculated that it was about the songwriter's upbringing. McCartney stated, When I look back at some of these lyrics, I think, Wait a minute, what did he mean? I call your name, but you're not there? Is it his mother, his father? I must admit I didn't really see that as we wrote it because we were just a couple of young guys writing. You didn't look behind it at the time. It was only later you started analyzing things. The Beatles, however, weren't the first ones to record the song. After Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas had a number two hit single with the Lennon-McCartney compositions Do You Want to Know a Secret and I'll Be On My Way, they followed up with another pair of the duo songs, Bad to Me, which reached number one in Britain, and its B-side, I Call Your Name. Seven months after Kramer's single was released, the Beatles recorded their version. Lennon remarked to George Martin before the first take, Do you think it's a bit much doing Billy J.'s intro and solo? Because it's our song anyway, isn't it? While they might have used those sections in their recording of the song, that was where the similarity ended. The Beatles version is far superior, slinky, funky, and hard-hitting with a raw, heartfelt vocal by Lennon and an early attempt at a ska, or as it was known in the UK, blue beat feel, during the solo section. 
McCartney switches gears for this part of the song and plays a swinging bass line, although it's apparent that he forgot about the feel change and plays the first bar straight before moving back to the mix of quarter notes and eighth notes that creates the feel for the majority of the song. While the part is simple, he punctuates it with slides and little riffs that would become more prevalent in his bass lines of 65 and 66. Look out for the cool licks under the last I Never Weep at Night line and on the fade. Just the same 
During the Rubber Soul sessions, McCartney began using a bass that he had initially been offered in February 1964 when the Beatles made their first trip to America to play on the Ed Sullivan Show in New York City. The left-handed Rickenbacker 4001 was specially built for McCartney and was shown to him at the Savoy Hilton Hotel, where the president and owner of Rickenbacker, Francis Hall, had set up a number of electric six-string guitars, as well as their new 12-string model, to demonstrate to the group with the hope that they would use his instruments in the studio, live, and on television appearances. Harrison was so sick that he couldn't attend, but Lennon knew he would be interested in the 12-string, so Hall brought the guitar to the Beatles Hotel Suite, and the rest is history. For some reason, McCartney refused to take the bass and wouldn't get one until the Beatles were in Los Angeles on tour in August of 1965. He fell in love with the sound and feel of the instrument and used it almost exclusively on Rubber Soul, Revolver, Sgt. Pepper, and Magical Mystery Tour. Unlike the Hofner, the Rick could play notes higher on the neck without going out of tune and had a hefty, more powerful sound. The first song that featured the Rick was the opening track on Rubber Soul, Drive My Car. That session was also the first to go past midnight something that would become the norm before too long. Although Harrison came up with the riff, which he doubles on guitar, McCartney adds his own vibe to it from the opening notes. Harrison elaborated on the session and the riff's origins. We laid the track because what Paul would usually do, if he had written a song, he'd learn all the parts for himself and then come in the studio and say, do this. He'd never give you the opportunity to come out with something. But on Drive My Car, I just played the line, which is really like a lick off respect, you know, the Otis Redding version. I played that line on the guitar, and Paul laid that with me on bass. We laid the track down like that. It's also interesting to hear how he strays from the original line at the end of the second and third choruses and on the outro, adding a spontaneous feel to the proceedings. McCartney also played the striking slide guitar solo, which we'll also hear in this mix. Three days after recording Drive My Car, the band reconvened at EMI Studios to record another riff-based song, their 11th and first double-A-sided single, Day Tripper. Lennon came up with the signature riff for the song, which Harrison and McCartney play in unison, as they had on Drive My Car, but McCartney really shines during the choruses, which he changes slightly each time. After the heavy riff of the verses, the bass bubbles under the rhythm guitar in the choruses in an extremely funky way. The hammer-ons are back for the build-up, and McCartney's use of a pedal tone works perfectly as the guitars rise to the climax. Look out for his dissonant use of the seventh on the outro, as he strays from the riff to add tension.
Next, a McCartney song that developed from one of the first pieces of music he ever wrote. McCartney elaborated on the origins of Michelle. There used to be a guy called Austin Mitchell, who was one of John's tutors at art school, and he used to throw some pretty good all-night parties. You could maybe pull girls there, which was the main aim of every second. You can get drinks, which was another aim, and you could generally put yourself about a bit. I remember sitting around there, and my recollection is of a black turtleneck sweater and sitting very enigmatically in the corner playing this rather French tune. I used to pretend I could speak French. It was my Maurice Chevalier meets Juliette Greco moment. Me trying to be enigmatic to make girls think, who's that very interesting French guy over in the corner? I would literally use it as that, and John knew this was one of my ploys. The tune was written in a Chet Atkins finger-picking style, similar to his tune Trambone. For years, it was just an instrumental, but during the sessions for the Rubber Soul LP, Lennon remarked, Do you remember that French thing you used to do at Mitchell's parties? Well, that's a good tune. You should do something with that. Since they needed more material for the album, McCartney wrote words to the section that he had, but the song wasn't finished until Lennon collaborated with his partner. Lennon stated, He and I were staying somewhere, and he walked in and hummed the first few bars with the words, and he says, Where do I go from here? I had been listening to Nina Simone. I think it was I put a spell on you. There was a line in it that went, I love you, I love you, I love you. That's what made me think of the middle eight for Michelle. So my contributions to Paul's songs was always to add a little bluesy edge to them. Otherwise, Michelle is a straight ballad, right? He provides a lightness and optimism, while I would always go for the sadness, the discords, the bluesy notes. McCartney also remembers how he came up with the bass line for the song. The bass line for this was thought up on the spot. I would have never played Michelle on bass until I had to record the bass line. Bass wasn't an instrument you sat around and sung to. I remember the opening six-note phrase against the descending chords of Michelle was like a great moment in my life. I think I had enough musical experience after years of playing, so it was just in me. I realized I could do that. It's quite a well-known trick. I'm sure jazz players have done that. I'll never forget putting the bass line in Michelle because it was a kind of bizet thing. It really turned the song around. You could do that with bass. It was very exciting. McCartney also did something unusual for a bass player. He put a capo on it. A capo is a device usually used on the neck of a guitar to shorten the playable length of the strings, hence raising the pitch. But as McCartney remarked, I'd try anything once, so I'll try a capo. I would just mess around with any experimental effect. Another song from Rubber Soul that literally had an experimental effect on the bass guitar was Harrison's Think for Yourself. Harrison explained the process. Paul used a fuzz box on the bass on Think for Yourself. When Phil Spector was making Zippity Doo Dah by Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans, the engineer who'd set up the track overloaded the microphone on the guitar player, and it became very distorted. Phil Spector said, leave it like that, it's great. Some years later, everyone started to try to copy that sound, so they invented the fuzz box. We had one and tried the bass through it, and it sounded really good. It wasn't the first time the Beatles experimented with a fuzz box. While working on She Loves You, Harrison originally played the lead guitar part through a Gibson Maestro FZ1 fuzz tone although it wasn't used on the final track. The fuzz, or distorted guitar tone, was first heard in 1961, a year before Zippity Doodah, on Marty Robbins' track Don't Worry. Due to a faulty preamp on the console, Grady Martin's six-string bass solo came out very fuzzy. The recording engineer at the session was Glenn Snoddy, who took advantage of the technical glitch and soon devised a way to replicate the sound with a transistor circuit. He pitched the idea to Gibson, and in 1962, the Gibson Maestro FZ1 fuzz tone was released. It wouldn't be used on a chart-topping record until June 1965, when the Rolling Stones would use it to great effect on the lead guitar riff of their number one single, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Another early example of the fuzz tone can be heard on the Ventures' 1962 track, 2000 Pound B. 
Red Rhodes custom-built a one-off fuzz box for the group, and this would officially become the first track ever recorded using a fuzz box. Had the Beatles utilized this piece of gear for the August release of She Loves You, it would have been the first number one hit using the FZ1, beating the Stones by nearly two years. Lennon tried to use it on Harrison's Don't Bother Me as well, but George Martin didn't think it worked for the song. The device they used on Think For Yourself wasn't the FZ1, but a unit called the Tone Bender. In 1965, Vic Flick, the James Bond-themed guitarist of the John Barry 7, showed his maestro fuzz tone to Gary Hurst, a young electronics whiz kid, and asked him if he could improve upon the design and create something smoother with more sustain. Hurst created the tone bender and personally gave one to the Beatles. He later supplied guitarists like Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page with the distortion pedal, and the face of rock music was changed forever. Although McCartney's fuzz bass follows the original bass line in many spots, it's the places where they differ, especially in the chorus, that makes the part so special. One, two, three, four.
Well, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed this special Paul McCartney bass player edition of the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, Volume 1, 1962-1963, and the Steely Dan FAQ, all that's left to know about this elusive band. Tune in to hear more deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, live cuts, solo tracks, and much, much more. You could stream past shows on iTunes, Podbean, or at the website, thebeatlesiwanttotellyou.com, and follow me on Instagram and Twitter, ShadyBearBKLYN. You can also like the Facebook pages for I Want to Tell You and the Steely Dan FAQ. You can pick up my new CD, The Steely Dan Sessions, Interpretations of Unrealized Classics, on CD Baby, Amazon, iTunes, the website anthonyrobustelli.com, or you can stream it on Spotify, Apple Music, or any of your favorite providers. See you next time.